pre-COVID, the number one tourist destination in Paris was the Cathedral of Notre Dame. Twelve million people a year would go every year to visit. The words Notre Dame mean Our Lady, and it is a cathedral that is dedicated to the Virgin Mary. Our Lady of Paris, that's what it's known as. Our Lady of Paris, it is the cathedral that everyone wanted to go and to see. And that's why it was so heartbreaking back on April the 15th, 2019, when you and I flipped on our television and we saw the flames leaping through the ceiling of, of this great cathedral. What had happened was they were in the midst of a restoration and a fire alarm had sounded. The supervisor saw the alarm and rather than calling the fire department, the fire brigade as they call it, he sent a guard to go check it out. And so a guard climbed all the way up into the attic there of Notre Dame and found nothing. He called a supervisor back, but the supervisor had wandered off. And so he then came all the way back down from the attic, had to find his supervisor to say, I didn't find anything. And then the supervisor realized they had sent him to the wrong place. They still didn't call the fire brigade. No, they sent the guard now to the new place to check it out. It's climbing 300 steps. He climbed 300 steps back to the attic of Notre Dame, and when he opened the door, there it was ablaze. All these timbers were on fire. He called back quickly to say, there is a fire going on. 30 minutes had gone by from the first alarm. They called the fire department. It was there in 10 minutes. But now it had been burning for 40 minutes or more. The flames were out of control. We saw the spire, the famous spire, going up in flames and then come crashing down through the ceiling, bringing with it 750 tons of stone and burning timbers and lead crashing down onto the floor of, of Notre Dame. It was horrific. The fact that the firefighters managed to put the fire out before the walls caved in or losing the stained glass, the rose glass window, was truly nothing short of a miracle. Restoration has begun. More than 200 people work on it every single day right now. They're working as fast as they can because they want to reopen the cathedral in July of 2024. Because July of 2024 is when the Olympics come to Paris. And it is said it will be open. The renovations will not be complete. They won't be complete for years. But maybe there will be enough renovations that people can come. After all, the number one tourist destination in Paris. So they're working away. But the fact that there is even a cathedral to be renovated is truly an amazing story. The cathedral was begun back in 1180. 63, Bishop Maurice Sully started the construction of Our Lady of Paris, the Notre Dame. It would take a hundred years before it would open. A hundred years before finally it was big enough and far enough along that they could open it. It was not finished. To bring it closer to the finish and the size, 
would take another hundred years. And you know, you see these incredible flying buttresses against the, the side and how it holds up the walls that are so high. It is a beautiful example of Garth Gothic architecture. Well, it was there now for hundreds of years serving the people until 1790. 1790 was the French Revolution. And when the French Revolution took place, it was not only against the monarchy, it was also against the church. The church was sacked and desecrated, seriously damaged. After it was all over, people began to repair it, but only as much as they could. And it was in such disrepair in the early 1800s that there was discussions about whether they should tear down Notre Dame Cathedral. But it was Victor Hugo who believed strongly that this was a part of France's history. Gothic buildings were being torn down all over the country. They were falling out of, of desire anymore. And he felt there was such history here and such beauty and they needed to be preserved. So he wanted to do something to help call their attention to the Cathedral of Notre Dame and what a gift they had and how it needed to be taken care of. And so he wrote his novel. And it was um, Notre Dame de Paris, Our Lady of Paris. It was published in 1831. Now, it had a storyline, but if you've ever read Hunchback of Notre Dame, you know that there's so much discussion about this cathedral and its history and, and the symbolism and the beauty, way more than is necessary in order to tell the story. But that's because that's what Victor Hugo wanted to do, to tell you about the cathedral more than just the story. And it worked. After it came out, this novel was so incredibly successful, wildly popular, and in the end, they formed the National Commission on Gothic Preservation. They formed this commission and it began working on Notre Dame. Now it had interest, people joined together. And it was in 1844, they started another renovation that would take 20 years to bring it back to its beauty and its life. That's the reason Victor Hugo wrote the story, Hunchback of Notre Dame. It was in 1833, two years after his book came out, as I said it was called, Notre Dame de Paris, but it was an English person who translated it into English and he gave it the title, Hunchback of Notre Dame. That's where the title came from. It's had such an impact. Now, it didn't just save Gothic architecture and save this beautiful cathedral. Victor Hugo used it as a platform to share his political opinions because he had a scathing rebuke of the aristocracy of France, the people of power, the people of wealth. He really took them to task for the way he felt that the working class person, the common everyday person was treated there in France for he felt there was such incredible injustice. And so that became the message politically as he carried out his message to try to save the building. You see, what Victor Hugo saw was that you had the aristocracy and the people of wealth and power and they always looked down on other people that they didn't feel were as good as them. 
Now that was an important message for the early 1800s in France, but I believe it's still an important message for you and me today. Because you know there's always the temptation to look down on other people who we don't feel are as smart or intellectual as us. People who maybe don't have as much wealth. People who, who don't seem to be as good, righteous. People who aren't as pretty or handsome. People who aren't as talented. People who are handicapped physically, mentally. It is easy to look down on other people, regardless of where you find yourself on the social ladder. It's easy to look down at other people and to pass judgment. And I think that is the great danger that we forget the importance of compassion and that everybody is a beloved child of God. That's what I believe our scripture lesson was about this morning in the book of Luke. In the book of Luke, we are reading about Jesus on His way to Jerusalem. It will be His final journey. He soon will be betrayed and crucified, ultimately raised from the dead. We believe this is the last time that Jesus will actually teach in the synagogue. And He's in the synagogue on this day. When a woman comes in who is bent over, it says she has an infirmity. She's had it for 18 years. And Jesus sees her and says, be freed of your infirmity and goes over and lays his hand on it and it says she stands up straight. Well, when that happens, the Pharisee, the head of the, the synagogue, says to the people, not to Jesus, says to all the people, you hypocrites, how in the world, these, excuse me, the Pharisee says to the people, if you want to be healed, you need to come six days a week, not on the Sabbath. On the Sabbath day, we do not work. It was Jesus who then answered and saying, You hypocrites, the law says you can untie your ox or ass from the manger and you can take them to get water. That's not work. Because you love your ox and ass, you want to be compassionate to the ox and the ass, you can take them to get water. But here's a daughter of Abraham who has had this infirmity for 18 years and she draws near and has the chance to be healed and you say we shouldn't do it? You can follow the laws that are supposed to make you righteous. Follow the laws to help you get things correct and you have forgotten that we're called to be compassionate, to be loving and to be caring. You've missed it. How easy it is for that to happen. And that's what I want us to think about this morning, the calling that we have as the people of God to show the compassion, the empathy towards others, to remember what matters. And the way I want us to get at the, the story of Victor Hugo is sharing here with the Hunchback of Notre Dame is by looking at three of the characters and seeing how we can see ourselves in each of the three. First of all, you have Claude Frollo. Claude Frollo is the archdeacon of, uh, of Notre Dame. Now the archdeacon, what that meant was he was a clergy, a cleric, and he was above the priest, 
and right below the bishop. He was the person who would be used to run the cathedral. And Claude Frollo was so determined to do all the right things, to be righteous, that he looked down on everybody else who wasn't as good and righteous as him. He looked down on others and he did not have mercy, though he had become very hardened and self-righteous. Now it's fascinating when Disney came along in 1996 and decided to make Hunchback of Notre Dame into a movie, they changed Claude Frollo from a cleric, a priest, to a lawyer. Because they decided it was easier to poke fun at lawyers than it was at the church. But that wasn't Victor Hugo. Victor Hugo wanted to take on the church. Because he believed the church was not reaching out and caring for the poor and the outcast the way that they should. See, Victor Hugo had had an experience as a young man. One day while walking down the streets of Paris, he saw a man who was being taken into custody for stealing a loaf of bread. He knew that this man was going to go to jail. But what really bothered him was as he looked at this happening, he looked on the other side of the street and there he saw this beautiful horse-drawn carriage. And in it was some people, they could have been royalty or just very wealthy. There was a woman and he believed probably her daughter and he saw them sitting there in this carriage and they were looking straight ahead and were totally oblivious or ignoring what was happening over here. And he looked at them knowing you have all in the world that you want to eat wealth for whatever you need or want to do. And over here a man was stealing a loaf of bread and is now going to go to jail. And you don't care. He watched them take him away and Victor Hugo put himself in that man's place. Began asking questions about himself. Why could he not buy bread? Was he stealing the bread for himself to eat? Was he stealing the bread to feed someone? This experience was going to affect his scathing rebuke of the royalty in France, but it also, you probably already see, is going to be the basis for Jean Valjean and Les Miserables to see what was going on and how we weren't caring about each other. Isn't it interesting, sometimes we can come to that point that we want to do right and we sometimes get on our high horse. I don't care, religion, politics, whatever. We have our strong and staunch beliefs and if we're not careful, we forget Jesus saying, the greatest commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with your heart and mind and soul and strength and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In other words, you want to follow the Big Ten? You want to follow all the laws and be righteous? Then love God and love your neighbor. Last week we looked at when Jesus said, So whatever you wish that men would do to you, do so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. We call it the golden rule that I should treat you the way I want to be treated. I should speak to you the way I want to be spoken to. And if I would do that, then I would be living a more righteous life. We sometimes forget the importance of compassion 
empathy because we get caught up so much in trying to be righteous. Secondly, Quasimodo. Quasimodo was a baby that was brought to the steps of the cathedral, left on the steps of the cathedral. As a child, he was deformed physically. He was a hunchback. He had an eye that was only, would only half see. He was not a beautiful child to look at. But he was brought and left on the steps of the church. Again, I think it's symbolic. Where to those who are hurting and struggling, where should they be brought? To God. That's where we all come as we hurt. Well, Quasimodo is taken in by Frollo, and there he is given food and water and clothes and raised up. But now he is treated so poorly by what he is told about himself. We were hearing the beautiful part of, of this music of um, Out There, but the very first part of the song Out There is actually sung by Frollo to Quasimodo with a little response from Quasimodo. I want to read you the first part of the song. Frollo would say, The world is cruel, the world is wicked. It is I alone whom you can trust in this city. I am your only friend. I who teach you, keep you, feed you, dress you. I who look upon you without fear. How can I protect you, boy, unless you always stay in here, away in here? You are deformed. I am deformed. And you are ugly. And I am ugly. And there are crimes for which the world shows little pity. You do not comprehend. You are my one defender. Out there they'll revile you as a monster. I am a monster. Out there they will hate you and scorn and jeer you. Only a monster. That's what Quasimodo was told. You're a monster. You're ugly. You are not worthy. You look at Quasimodo, and I think, how often do we say that about ourselves? Have you ever stood in front of the mirror and said, I am ugly? If you have a teenage daughter... I know someone who has. The world is so cruel to young women. It has such high expectations in the way it treats them and what it says to them. But I believe it happens to all of us. We look in the mirror and we wonder, am I lovable? Am I worthy? Am I good enough for somebody to care? And if we're not careful, we are like Quasimodo. We begin to hide inside the walls because we know that we will never be accepted. We can't be who we are in our own skin. And yet it's only when you and I decide that we can be who we feel called to be and we go out there that we have any chance to be the person that God has created us to be. You know, whenever I've been working on all these different um, musicals for Disney, it seems like the name that comes up over and over again is Alan Menken. 
And Alan Menken has such a fascinating story. He was born and raised in New York. Um, he grew up in a good Jewish family. It turned out that his father was a dentist. His father's brother was a dentist. His father's sister's husband was a dentist. His wife's husband, her wife's brother's husband was a dentist. Sister's husband was a dentist. Everybody was a dentist. Well, you can only imagine what Alan knew he was going to be when he grew up. A dentist. But his father loved piano, and his father was an incredible piano player, and he would love to come home and to play, and Alan loved to stand around and to sing with him. His mother was also a performer. They were a gifted family. He was required to take piano lessons, and he learned violin. He became quite the musician. But when he went off to college, he was pre-med because he knew he was going to be a dentist. That's what the world expected of him. But halfway through his college education, he came to a realization, I feel called to be a composer. That's what I want to do more than anything. I don't want to be a dentist. And he came to the realization, but now you've got to go home and tell your mom and dad, I'm not going to be a dentist. I'm dropping out of pre-med. I want to get a degree in music. And what do parents say when children say, I want to get a degree in music? How are you going to make a living? Fair question. But Alan said, I want to be a composer and it doesn't really matter about the money. Well, in the end, he got married. He would have a couple of children. He's actually now been married for 49 years. But those first 10 years were tough. Really tough. It's fine to say, I'm going to be a composer. But when all the things you compose are not picked up on, they're not produced into musicals, you're not selling your songs, you still have to eat. And so Alan says in those 10 years, well, he, he became an accompanist for dancers. He began writing jingles. He became a director of nightclub acts. Uh, he actually wrote music for Sesame Street. He um, became a vocal coach. He did all kinds of things to try to keep her from starving to death as he continued to try to be a composer. Finally, he began working with uh, Howard Ashman. And together they began working. They decided to pick up an old movie from the 1960s, Little Shop of Horrors. And they decided they'd write a musical about that. And so they did, and they got it to be produced off-Broadway. And when I say off-Broadway, I mean the theater would hold 99 people. That's smaller than our petite theater downstairs in the basement. But that's where they opened their show, and it was a huge success. So many people came. They lined up around the block. It was a success. And because of that one success, Disney came calling to Howard and Alan and said, we're trying a revival, something new finally out of here at Disney, and we're going to create a movie, and it's going to be a musical, and we'd love for you to come write the music and score. It was Little Mermaid. They had no idea what to do. They went out and began trying to learn and writing, it worked out pretty well. In the end, they'd win an Academy Award for Best Song and Best Score. Huge success. And from there, Disney came back and said, you know, we're going to do a new musical, uh, a movie. It's going to be called Beauty and the Beast. We're looking at that in two weeks here at St. Luke's. We're going to do Beauty and the Beast. Another Academy Award for Best Song and Best Score. 
Well, we'd like to do another one. We're, we're going to wind up doing um, Aladdin. Huge success. We're going to do Pocahontas. Huge success. Finally, we're going to do Hunchback of Notre Dame. And so Alan Menken was writing this. Howard Ashman had passed away, and so he was writing with Stephen Schwartz. But they wrote the music here for Hunchback of Notre Dame. And obviously an incredible success as the time went on. He's had a phenomenal life. I was watching an interview with him, and they were saying, you know, you look at your life and how it started and, and all the struggles you went through and then how it just kind of suddenly came about and began to grow. And I mean, you've gone to Hollywood and kind of never come back and you've had all the success and now you're doing things for Broadway. And do you think that could ever happen again with the environment of Broadway and music today? And Alan looked at him and he said, yes, it happens all the time. It can happen to you and to me when we choose to be what we believe we are called to be and not worry what everyone wants us to be or thinks we should be. I love the symbolism, the, the view when Jesus is there in the synagogue and the woman comes in and she is bent over and he heals her from her infirmity and it says, and she stands up straight. That's what happens when you know God's grace. You stand up straight. You stand up straight so you can go out there. Rather than being bent over and seeing yourself as being ugly or not smart or a failure or not good enough or not lovable, you experience the gift of God's grace and you are healed so you can stand up straight and go out there. Yes, meaning in life happens all the time. And third, Esmeralda. Fascinating character. She is the gypsy dancer. Now, they are considered by society in that day in Paris as the lowest of low. And Victor Hugo makes her the protagonist. He makes her the hero. She is the one who has compassion. She is the one who will see Quasimodo and he is suffering and she brings him water, no one else. She is the one who's willing to sacrifice for others. She is the one who is willing to set herself aside to bless others. Now the very thing that we want and the thing that makes the world work, that's what Esmeralda is. Now, when Victor Hugo does this, he is turning things upside down and what the, the French society of his day would understand. To be the hero, you must be the person who follows all the rules, the righteous. To turn that upside down and say, no, it is Esmeralda, the gypsy dancer. She is the one of compassion. It is to make a statement that everyone is a beloved child of God. Even the outcast. I love the song we're going to hear in just a few moments. Again, Alan and Stephen wrote it. God help the outcast. Esmeralda has been led to the cathedral of Notre Dame. She is fleeing Frollo. 
She comes to the Cathedral of Notre Dame to seek sanctuary. You can't be arrested if you're there in the cathedral. If you leave, you can be arrested, but not while you are there. So where is she safe? Driven back into the arms of God? There in the cathedral, she sings her prayer. I don't know if you can hear me or if you're even there. I don't know if you would listen to a gypsy's prayer. Yes, I know I'm just an outcast. I shouldn't speak to you. Still, I see your face and wonder, were you once an outcast too? God help the outcast, hungry from birth. Show them mercy they don't find on earth. God help my people. We look to you still. God helps the outcast, or nobody will. Others begin to pray. I ask for wealth. I ask for fame. I ask for glory to shine on my name. I ask for love that I can possess. I ask for God and his angels to bless. And Esmeralda sings again, I ask for nothing. I can get by, but I know so many less lucky than I. Please help my people, the poor and downtrod. I thought we all were children of God. God, help the outcast, children of God. Recently, I was talking to Ashley Robinson. Her brother, Anthony, had been on staff here at St. Luke's for quite some time, working with our El Sistema after-school program, our wonderful musical program that is such a blessing to so many who come from more challenged economic circumstances. Such an amazing program. But Ashley had been participating in the Miss Oklahoma contest over in Tulsa a couple months ago, and she won. She won. And so we were in staff meeting with Anthony, and we were celebrating that his sister had won Miss Oklahoma. But what really caught my attention was, for her talent, Ashley sang the song, God Help the Outcast. Now, that's not what I would consider a typical pageant song. Now, I would ask her about it, and she said, no, no. What you're usually looking for is something kind of brassy, sassy, something where you can show how you can sing. I said, well, why did you choose God Help the Outcast? And she said, Bob, you wouldn't remember, but several years ago when we were doing Disney magic down in the Petit Theater in the summer, we put on Hunchback of Notre Dame. And I was in it. I played Esmeralda. I loved the music. But the reason I chose it was because of my sister, Danielle. You see, Ashley is one of four in a family. And she said, we were raised in such a way that, that we were told we need to make a difference in this world. We need to be kind. We need to work hard. And that meant all four of us. And my younger sister, Danielle, who's now 21, she has Down syndrome. But our parents expected all of us to be the kind of people who would make a difference in this world and be kind and work hard. And that certainly meant her too. But what I've seen in the world is that not everybody will have high expectations for my sister. That I get lots of opportunities to fulfill my calling, but she doesn't get lots of opportunities to fulfill her calling. 
It's not what the world offers. And these things bother me greatly. Everybody should have opportunities to be the person that God has called them to be. Everyone should be treated with a sense of respect and she should have high expectations. She now works at a coffee shop, Danielle does, called Not Your Average Joe. Happens to be right around the corner from here at the church. Now she works there and Danielle said she's amazing. She has an incredible memory. If you come in once and you order, I'll take a latte with an extra cream. And I, the next time you walk in, she'll call you by name and know what you had. She'll give it to you again and she'll start trying to sell you something to eat as well. Said she is amazing. It's a nonprofit that really tries to offer work for people who might be mentally handicapped. But it has high expectations and opportunities to get out and work and to excel. She said, that's why I chose the song. When she sang the song, and here she wins, the judges said to her, it's interesting you chose this song to sing at a pageant. But when you sang it, it seemed to come from your heart. Oh, it did. And it should for you and me too. We are the people who are called to be honest and look at our lives and make sure that we are not those who have become self-righteous and rigid and so locked in that we look down on others who may be different or have emotional, mental, physical handicaps. We are the people who come and stand and experience the gift of God's grace. So we don't have to stand in front of the mirror and ask, am I good enough? Am I lovable? You know the gift of God's grace, so you stand straight so you can go out there. And then when you go out there, you will be filled with a sense of compassion, a sense of mercy, a sense of grace for others. And we will all pray, God, please help my people, the poor and downtrodden. I thought we all were children of God. God help the outcast, the children of God. It's in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen.